Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. We're going to talk about Noah and the flood today. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. There is so much information in this. I am like, we may be here for another hour and a half. But in all seriousness, because I won't do that to you. Um, this is an amazing story. And really, it's a story of God's redemption. That's the point. It, God's sovereignty, God's redemption, the fact that God is over all things. And we've been walking through the Old Testament. Some of you think very slowly, and it's all right. We're about to pick up speed. We're covering like five or six chapters today, okay? So we'll triple the amount of chapters that we've covered in one sermon. And then we're going to get into Israel and the law, and we're going to start flying fast. So I hope you're reading through the Bible chronologically. We're going to catch I'll catch up to you, probably uh, bypass you. Um, but in the midst of it all, Jesus, the hero of history, right? There's a thread throughout the entire Bible, and it's faith. It's faith. There's grace, clearly. We see God's grace in the midst of everything. We'll see that this morning. We'll see the fact that God has a redemption story. And all these things in the Old Testament point to Christ. The ark, if you will, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation in Christ. It's amazing. How God has orchestrated it. We started out talking about how scripture is inerrant. It's infallible. It's perfect, even to the very words. We believe in the historical, grammatical, contextual, literary truth of the word of God. And so we can take the word of God at face value. We understand that we don't understand all that there is in the word of God. But we understand that the word of God is the word of God. And so we rest in that. It is the final authority in all things. We looked at creation, how man has been created in God's image. What a beautiful picture. The fall, how that image has been marred. We looked at evil and Satan. We're going to look at the flood. So we're going to run real fast for a few minutes, okay? Can we do that? I'm going to throw a bunch of info at you. You listen quick, and if you finish first, let me know. We see after the fall, right? After Adam sins, Eve sins, we walk through that. There's a period of time now leading up to the flood. And I want you to hang on to this thought because I think this is the the issue in so many different ways. God alone is able to save and he demands faith no matter what time period in human history. It doesn't matter when you want to look at human history, faith is demanded. Salvation has never been predicated on works. It's always on faith. We're going to see that in Abraham. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteous. We're going to see it in Noah. He's considered a righteous man and yet he found favor with God. We're going to look at that. No matter what time period in human history, salvation is something that God accomplishes. And he demands faith. To believe, to be persuaded that what God has said is true and that we can trust him, that he alone is able and he's capable. And as a result, we can put all our faith and trust in him. He alone is really, truly worthy of it. 
We get past chapter 3 in the fall, we get into chapter 4, and we immediately see sin taking its root, and we have the first murder, Cain and Abel. And I don't know how you remember this, because I always, as a kid, got this messed up. I was always trying to figure out who killed who, you know? Cain killed. Cain killed. And that's how you remember it. Cain killed Abel. Abel brought a righteous sacrifice to the Lord. It was a blood sacrifice. The Lord received it. Cain did not. And the Lord rejected it. And as a result, Cain was jealous, went out and killed his brother and his punishment. You can read about it in chapter 4. There's some interesting points here. I think we get this picture of humanity as Neanderthalish. (laughs) Am I right? Oh, we're so much smarter than they are. All that kind of stuff. There's some brilliant people. Adam's one of them. Jabel dwelled in tents. We learn this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. He says that he's the father of all who work with flocks. Jubal, the lyre and the pipe in Genesis 4, 21. He created the lyre, the pipe, and the music, uh, music came into things. Phenomenal. Tubal Cain, he worked with bronze and iron in Genesis 4, 22. Fascinating. These people began to immediately use the resources of creation that God had given them, and they were enacting what God had told them. Rule over the earth, subdue it. They began to form things. Very creative. Very intelligent. In Genesis 5, we see that Seth was born, and that's an important marker because he replaces Abel, and he becomes the line through which Jesus is born. Adam dies at the age of 930 years. Somebody said, you really believe in that kind of stuff? You believe that people are that? I was talking to Mike Riddle who came for the creation seminar. He had a student ask him, you really believe that people live that long? And he looked at him and said, and you don't? Look, folks, I, I don't know what it would be like to be 930 years old. I'm glad we're going home. I don't know. I <laughs> think. Seth lived 912 years. Enoch is interesting. He lived 365 years. And in Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Now, there's only two people in the Bible that I know of that didn't experience physical death. And he's one of them, Enoch. The other is Elijah. I wonder, we know Elijah is, but I wonder if Enoch isn't one of the two witnesses we find in Revelation. You can chew on that. Enoch's great-grandson is Noah, right? So Noah is very closely related. If you look at a timeline, and we'll get that for you eventually in terms of the kings and all that kind of stuff, we want to show the genealogies. It's amazing how many people would have been directly related to Adam because he lived so long. It's phenomenal. And we pick up the story of Noah in Genesis 5.32 where he says Noah was 500 years old and became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So three things this morning as we look at this, and I just want to give you a snapshot of this. You're going to talk about it even more in K groups. But first of all, the righteous standard of God. God has a righteous standard. His requirements for salvation. He has a requirement for salvation. And his redemptive power, he is able to save, which is a beautiful truth. And praise God we can hang on to that. But the righteous standard of God. In Genesis 6, 
And I'm not going to get into the Nephilim. Some of you may have been waiting for this moment. What are the Nephilim? Right? Are they demonic angels that came down and procreated with women? Are they uh, men who were evil, who were uh, possessed or indwelt by demonic angels and then, uh, you know, procreated with women? And therefore, a whole line of, of humanity that was demigods became into existence. Look, I, I'm not going to get into all this. I'd, I'd go to uh, all kinds of research on this thing uh, in terms of answers in Genesis. And there's many other uh, websites that you can go to where people have really delved into this issue. I'm just going to give you a snapshot of it. I think in this chapter, what we're seeing is the righteousness of Noah and the unrighteousness of humanity. And the Nephilim simply means the fallen ones. They were clearly men of renown. They were famous. They were well known. And it has the idea that they were fallen. They were not seeking God. They were not following God. Perhaps they were of the line of Seth, but they were the unrighteous men of the line of Seth. They are more categorical than they are a race or a group or a tribe because we know that everybody except Noah and his sons and their wives died in the flood and therefore the Nephilim would have died then as well. But we find them after the flood as Israel's about to go into the land of Canaan and take over and some of the spies were pretty scared because they said, hey, the Nephilim are there. Well, they didn't survive the flood. So there's got to be a category, and I believe that it is that they were unrighteous. They were mighty men of renown, but they were unrighteous. They were wicked, and God stepped in to judge them directly. There's the long story short. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, We get a very, very sad picture of humanity. It says, The Lord saw that wickedness, the wickedness of man, was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then there's this transition moment, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that word favor is a fascinating word because it is the word grace. It's the word grace. Noah found grace with God. Noah found grace in the eyes of of God. Spiros in his Old Testament commentary states this, Genesis 6-8 stands as the fundamental application of this word in the Hebrew, meaning an unmerited favor or regard in God's sight. Don't miss that. Sometimes we look at Noah or we look at these other men in the Old Testament and we go, look how good they were. Look how well they kept the law and they submitted to the law. Folks, understand grace is a thread that flows through all of Scripture. Noah was not a perfect man. We know that because after the flood, the things that happened. But he found favor. God saved for himself a remnant. Clearly, Noah submitted to the Lord. And we see that even in the building of the ark, which probably took upwards of 75 years. Can you imagine? But in the midst of it all, it's God's grace that comes to bear for salvation to take place. So 
So in Genesis chapter 6, 9 through 10, it says, These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He conformed to the godly standard that the Lord had for humanity at that time. He was blameless. Noah walked with God. He was a worshiper of God. We understand that early on, at the immediate moment of sin entering into this world through Adam, and the curse that was given not only to the serpent but to the woman and to Adam, we understand that the gospel was proclaimed. That the Lord tells Eve, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. He's going to bruise your heel. He's going to bruise the seed's heel. But the seed will crush his head. We get this picture That God has prepared salvation from the very beginning. We know the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the earth. We know that humanity understood that. We know that when Adam and Eve were clothed, not with the fig leaves that they used because they were embarrassed, because they were in shame, because they knew that they were naked, because they had sinned, but rather God had killed animals in order to cover them. And the picture of that is a garment covering them and the shedding of blood in order For their forgiveness of sin. We know that Adam had hope after the fall. Because he named his wife Eve. The living one. The one who is going to be the mother of all who are living. And so I believe that he believed in the gospel. And he was saved as a result of believing in the promise that God had given to them. We know all of those things have taken place. Noah understands those things. He's a worshiper of God. He's blameless and he walks with God. And in verse 10 it says that he became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord says to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. I love what Peter states about Noah in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He's talking about judgment. But he makes a comment about Noah. By the way, the New Testament gives validity not only to the ark, but also to the flood and the destruction of humanity. And so you can't look at the Old Testament and pick and choose what parts of it you want to believe and what parts you don't without undermining the New Testament. It's impossible to do that. 2 Peter 2.5 says he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. There's a righteous standard of God. The Lord looks at humanity. And he recognizes the fallenness of humanity. And by grace, he rescues Noah and his family. What is his requirement for salvation? In Genesis 6, going back to Genesis 6, verses 11 and following, says the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. As the result of the unrighteousness of humanity, apart from Noah and his family, God is about to bring judgment upon humanity, upon the earth. We call it the flood. Let me give you some interesting notes on the flood. And I believe we got some pictures of the ark. Normally when we think of the ark, we get these uh, child pictures in our mind, right? 
<laughs> Can you? The monkey's just hanging out, man. Come on. Right? You get the giraffes with their necks way above. The elephant's kind of going, what? How are we in the back? You know, I guess they put them in the back because they're heaviest, and that way the front could motor better. Something like that. <laughs> That's not what the ark looked like, folks, right? Do you know at this point in human history, there had never been rain on the earth. The earth was watered through the mist that came up from the ground. Genesis 2, 5 through 6 tells us that. It probably took about 75 years to build the ark. You can figure that out using the age, uh, ages of the, the kids of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the other date clues that are found in there. The size of the ark actually is the size of a modern-day cargo ship. I mean, this thing is huge. Up to 500 feet long, up to 50 feet uh, wide or high, and up to 75 to 83 feet wide. Unbelievable. People have done research on this, and they have found that the ark was exactly the dimensions that it needed to be in order to go through a cataclysmic event like the flood. That the ark could literally have withstood 100-foot waves. Incredible. The ark had one door, one window. But what's interesting, in Genesis 6.16 and then also in chapter 7, verse 16, the Lord is the one who closes the door. He has Noah and his family get on, and then he himself shuts the door. And I think that's a beautiful picture. Number one, because this salvation is from him. Number two, Noah and the family didn't have to in any way, shape, or form be held accountable for the death of the rest of humanity. And by the way, I would say this unequivocally. This is a worldwide catastrophe. It changed and shaped, reshaped the entire ecosystem of earth as we know it. I think the fossil record gives uh, an account for that. There's all kinds of different factors that you can look at this geologically in order to show that the flood is a reality. There's all kinds of extra-biblical sources, not only geological, but also in every religion in the world, there is some kind of flood account. I mean, it's indescribable how pervasive this story really is. In Genesis 6.19, we're told that they're to bring two of every kind, male and female, into the ark. And he specifies, the Lord does to Noah, what kind of animals to actually bring. Some people have had a hard time with that. Well, how could they fit all this stuff on there? Well, there's all kinds of answers to that. And again, I would encourage you to research that. Let me just give you a few snapshot thoughts. Many of the animals were undoubtedly young. I doubt they had full-grown elephants uh, sitting on the ark, you know. Many of them fell potentially into a trance. You know, some of the, some of the thoughts of how in the world did Noah and his family feed all these things? Well, when a cataclysmic event takes place, we know this today, that many animals go into a state of hibernation. And that may have been the case then. They were young. They were smaller. They didn't need to be fed because they had gone into a trance or a state of hibernation. And not only that, the number of animals are very different than today. We have the kinds, the head of that kind We may not have had all the different various kinds of cats that we have today. We may have had the parent, in effect, cat family. 
through which genetic diversity has taken place, and now we all have all the different kinds of cats that we have today. I don't think we had, you know, 50 or whatever it is, amount of different kinds of cats on the ark. We may have had one pair. And through them, God repopulated the earth. The flood is cataclysmic, total destruction. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives are saved. And afterwards, we have this tremendous moment where Noah offers a sacrifice to the Lord. And it's stated, and again, this is an allegory in many ways. The Lord doesn't have to smell something in order to be pleasing to him. It's just a description that the sacrifice was pleasing to him. But it says that the aroma of the sacrifice was soothing, was pleasing to him, and he sends a rainbow into the sky in order to remind humanity that he will never again destroy the entire earth with water. Every time we look at a rainbow, we have that promised us. It's amazing how the rainbow has been hijacked in our day. There's the righteous standard of God as requirement for salvation. It's faith. Faith. Think about Noah and his family building an ark and there's never been rain. There's no sign of any type of catastrophe at all whatsoever. Nothing. And yet the recognition that what God has said is good enough. And they begin to do this tremendous work. And in the midst of that, they're not only believing God themselves, but they're also sharing with others that they too can be saved if they would simply believe in God. How do I know that? Because we just read it a minute ago, but let me read it again. 2 Peter 2, 5, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a what? A preacher of righteousness, a proclaimer. And the picture is very clear as he's building this ark. The ark itself is a testimony. It's a story that people are going, what are you doing? And Noah begins to let them know that the way you're living is not what you were designed or created for. You're living in unrighteousness. God desires for us to walk with him. That's what we were created for. And God's going to bring judgment. And I'm building this ark because of the judgment that's to come. A preacher of righteousness. God alone is able to save, and he demands faith no matter what time period in human history. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 and following with me. Fascinating chapter. Verses 4 through 7 deal with some of the people that we've talked about this morning briefly. Hebrews 11, 4 through 7. He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Now, catch that. By faith, Abel offered to God. He believed God. He was persuaded by God, and his activity showed it. It says that he offered a better sacrifice than Cain. He offered a blood sacrifice. He was a keeper of the flocks. And he took some of the best of his flocks and he offered the sacrifice because it was a blood sacrifice. And that is what is necessary to cover sin. Cain did not. He did not believe God. He did not walk with God. He disobeyed God. And he went and killed his brother Abel. So Abel has 
this testimony about himself, that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Why? Because the Old Testament is the word of God. We hear the story, we recognize the truth of it, and there is a reality to what Abel did. There is a persuasion, there is a willingness to say, yes, Lord. You know, it's interesting what Cain, in effect, did, if you really want to get into it, was he tried to be religious and do something for God that was not in accordance with what God had said to do. And then, in effect, say to God that what I've done is prove to you that I'm good. I don't need your salvation. I don't need your sacrifice. I don't need to do it the way you want to do it. I'm going to do it my way. And folks, fundamentally, not much has changed in our world. Because there's a lot of people that like to take religion and say, look, God, look at all the things I've done. Look at how good I am. And they take their good works, their good deeds, in effect, their own sacrifices that they've created. And they bring it before God and they say, see, I'm good. And what does that do? It denies the very need of Christ Jesus himself. Well, he goes on. In verse 5, he says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. He walked with God. How? What's the context of Hebrews 11? By faith. He walked by faith. He trusted the Lord. He believed in the gospel. He looked forward to the coming of the one who had crushed the serpent's head. Verse 6 becomes a principle that's for all time, all people. Doesn't matter what moment in history that we're talking about, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Fascinating. Without faith it is impossible to please him. Verse 7, by faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. What can we say about Noah? He believed God. He had never seen rain. He didn't even know what a cataclysmic event was going to be. You're going to destroy the earth with water? We know that that was a massive thing. The, the floods from the deeps, the depths, created, I believe, in some ways, a rift in whatever canopy was there, which created a deluge. And so for 40 days and 40 nights, earth was absolutely saturated with water. The land masses shifted, Pangea shifted, everything. It's unbelievable. I would encourage you to go study it. It's phenomenal. All the rock formations, the mountains, the Alps, the, the Rockies, and how the tectonic plates shifted where the volcanoes even are. I mean, it's just amazing. The different types of rocks, how the fossils were formed with sedimentary rock. It's unreal. But by faith, Noah believed God that this destruction, this judgment was coming. And as a result, he acted on that belief and he did what God told him to do. And as a result, he was considered righteous. Faith is what is required by the Lord for our salvation. We know that Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we're saved by grace through faith. 
Noah found favor with God. He found grace with God because he believed God. And we're warned as well to be aware of the coming judgment when the Lord returns. We know that the Lord is not going to destroy this earth with water. We know that the Lord, scripturally, biblically, says that he's going to destroy this earth. He's going to recreate it. He's going to do it with fire. And are we ready for that? Do we believe in Jesus Christ? Do we walk with him by faith? Are we saying yes to him? Are we persuaded by what God has said? Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 and following, give us a picture of this. He says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. In other words, the return of Christ will be like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wow. They were going about daily duties. They were going about their normal, regular activities. They were being married. They had plans for the future. They had hopes. They had dreams. But they were ignoring the warning from God. Matthew tells us, he records for us, that the Son of Man, when he comes again, that the days will be like that. People will be ignoring God. They don't want anything to do with God. They won't be walking by faith. They won't be walking according to God's ways. There's a warning here, folks. There's a wonderful picture of God's salvation. The ark is something that shows us that God is able to save. There's redemption. How? By believing in Jesus Christ. We know Noah didn't know Jesus Christ, but we know that he had the gospel and he looked forward. And he believed God and therefore it was credited to him in that sense as being righteous. He found favor with God. There was grace involved in this. Today, the lamb has come. And we can look back. We sang about it. We can look back and we can look at the point in time when Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died. He gave up his spirit. He shed his blood so that we too can be rescued from the coming wrath of the Lamb. How does that take place? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 16.31 gives us such a beautiful picture of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what? You shall be saved. It doesn't say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and oh, by the way, you better do all these things in order to show that you really believed it or you better do all these things in order to make sure that you're clean enough to come to God. He just says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It doesn't say maybe, potentially, possibly. Depends on what church you go to. <laughs> maybe, you, you know. No. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall be saved. What a promise. Under the blood, cleansed, made right with God, justified, just as if I had never sinned. Can you imagine that? Each and every one of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, just as if we had never sinned, God sees us as complete, as holy. And now we are going through the process of becoming like him because of who he is. And we have a future that is absolutely secure in Christ. We don't have to fear the wrath of God because God himself has rescued us and he's poured all his wrath out on his son at the cross. How does all that take place? By faith. By faith. I believe, Lord. I believe.
morning, do you believe? This morning, are you walking in that faith? We've, we have sprinted through the story of Noah, along with chapters 4 and 5 and 8 and 9. <laughs> I didn't leave out 7. It's all right. I got, got 7. But let me ask you something this morning. Do you realize, I absolutely believe this with all my heart, we are in the last days, folks. We see an increase of lawlessness. An increase of lawlessness. There's no question about that. We know that that's one of the signs for the end. Are we in Christ? Are we in him? Have we entered through that one door that God himself seals shut? so that we will be preserved in the midst of a cataclysmic event. Trusting in the Lord for salvation. Trusting in his redemptive power. Have we done that? And are we walking in that so that others who don't have hope, who don't know God, have the opportunity to know God, to have hope? Because they too have the opportunity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive that promise that they too shall be saved. Are we walking in that? Do we believe that? Is it evidenced in every area of our lives? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.